Dear Father, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we have been blessed by what you have spoken to us through your word. And often as we consider events that uh, precede our time by such a great uh, uh, period, we're sometimes uh, just amazed at the truth that we find written so long ago that is as living and powerful today as ever. We know, Father, the scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, immutable, unchangeable, and we, are, we know that human beings, too, are for the most part, are the same now as they've always been in the sense that we have the same proclivities to sin and, and to failure. And yet, Lord, you are faithful, and we're grateful for what you've done in each of our lives and for what you're uh, intending yet to do. And I pray that today we'll be one step further in the path that you have set before us to make us into the people you want us to be. Draw us together in our spirits now as we focus on your word. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like for us to turn to Genesis chapter 41, and I'd like to begin reading at verse 33. Genesis 41, 33. And now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit, or as I mentioned to you last time, literally the spirit of Elohim? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne, will, uh, throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zephanath Paniah, and he gave him to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. One of the great and exciting dramas of Scripture. Uh, the life of Joseph, uh, so often portrayed as a Christ-like person. And uh, we have seen, of course, in the study of his life so far, that in many ways he was, but in some ways, of course, he wasn't. He was human, even as we are today. But as we have seen, uh, Pharaoh had this, this dream, two dreams, actually, and Joseph was the only person who could interpret the dream. Of all the wise men in all of Egypt, none of the great priests of the various gods and goddesses were able to penetrate this dream 
simple as it is, except Joseph. And of course, Joseph was brought up out of prison in order to do this, where he had been languishing for several years. Joseph, we discover in this passage, was made second in power in the whole kingdom of Egypt. Only Pharaoh himself would be greater than Joseph. And you think about that, that's pretty heady stuff. For a young man to be lifted out of the prison where he's been languishing for many years and to be made the second most powerful man in the entire kingdom. And of course, Egypt at that time was one of the most powerful kingdoms on the surface of the earth. So it was uh, something, I suppose, that caused Joseph to be rather thrilled. At the same time, I'm sure his trust in God was driven deeper. Remember, he had been most of his life a shepherd for the first 17 years of his life. He was a shepherd for the next 13 or so years of his life. He served as a slave and as a prisoner. N none of those things would be particularly looked upon today as good preparation for being prime minister. You know, most of us would think, well, you have to go to a good school and you have to have practice in lower positions in the government before you could achieve the second highest position. But shepherdship, slavehood, and being a con doesn't necessarily prepare one for this. What's interesting as you read down through this passage further that we discover what the uh, emblems of the office were. What, what marked him out as the prime minister in the land of Egypt? Well, first of all, we're told in this passage he's given a signet ring. We talked about a signet ring before. Er, uh, earlier in Genesis, just a few chapters back, we studied the, uh, Judah and Tamar, and we noted that in that story a signet ring was, was involved. Well, as Pharaoh took off his signet ring, which was the symbol of his power, which was basically his signature, because on the ring there were uh, engravings which were uh, unique to the Pharaoh, and as that was pressed into wax or, or molten metal to seal a document, that was the signature of, of the man in power. And so as he gave it to, to Joseph, what he was doing was handing Joseph a carte blanche a blank check, if you will, to do whatever he w had to do and to have the power and the resources to do it. All he had to do was seal his orders with Pharaoh's signet ring and it would be as if the order came from Pharaoh himself. Down through much of the course of history, last 1,500 years or so, there has been uh, the growth, of course, as you know, of the Catholic Church and the head of the Catholic Church, the Pope, also wears a ring, and that ring is used to seal documents which go forth under his imprimatur. And that ring is called the bulla. It's worn on his finger, and whenever a papal document is sealed, the wax or the molten metal, whatever it is, the lead, the silver, the gold, he presses that into it, uh, that causes that paper to become a papal bull uh, for the bulla, which is the ring. And a papal bull is a document of highest priority within the Catholic Church because it bears the impression of the Catholics, uh, of the Pope's signet ring. So this is a very, very powerful piece of authority that Joseph had here. Secondly, we're told that he was dressed in fine linen. Now to us we say, well, big deal. He was put on, you know, given some nice clothes. Fine linen was the symbol of the nobility of that day. Fine linen was so expensive 
that none but the very most wealthy could afford to have it in ancient Egypt. The records show that uh, flax, from which linen comes, was grown in Egypt at least 2000 BC or even before, uh, there in the valley of uh, Egypt. Flax is still grown around the world today. It's not one of the massive crops grown because we use it for other things than, than linen. But linen has been extracted from flax for, as I said, at least 4,000 years. And the Egyptians have always been leaders in this, at least they were in the ancient period. And uh, flax, oh, it's a, it's a plant grows so tall or so, and uh, when, they, when they harvest it, they yank the whole plant out, they leave it out in the sun to dry, and then they put it in water to begin to, to create a, a degradation process, which would then take away the, uh, the more uh, pulpy stuff so that they can end up with the cellulose fibers which, uh, from which linen is made. And I'm told uh, uh, that the ancient Egyptians, as best as they're able to discover, were able to draw this fiber so fine that it was almost invisible. The single fibers of linen were almost invisible. They were so fine. In fact, the best weavers of linen in the ancient world could make a garment of linen that was almost indistinguishable from a garment of silk. Now, fine linen, the Hebrew word here for fine linen, means the sheer, almost translucent form of linen. And if you've ever looked at some of the statuary that has come from ancient Egypt, you've seen what that uh, looked like as they tried to replicate it in stone. It uh, tended to cling to the body and, and of course, uh, it, as I said, it was pretty sheer. But that was considered to be the finest uh, form of clothing in ancient days. In, I don't have this on the outline, but let me read a verse from Exodus chapter 9. There are several passages in Exodus that deal with uh, linen and flax. But in uh, Exodus chapter 9, verse 31, this is when Moses is uh, proclaiming the word of the Lord and the plagues are falling upon Egypt because of Pharaoh, a later Pharaoh, of course. His resistance to God's word and so the plagues are coming. And this is the plague of hail. In verse 31 it says, Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. Was in bud. And other things were not ruined because of where they were in their growth cycle. But the flax was grown up and, and was in the process of flowering. And at that point, uh, for the hail to come, it ruined the flax crop. But as I said, flax was very important to the ancient Egyptians for the manufacture primarily of linen. It's also very cool, a cool form of material to wear. Egypt's a very warm place. Thirdly, a gold necklace was given to him. Gold necklaces traditionally through history are symbols of royal authority. I have there a passage for you to look at from Daniel, chapter 29. I mean chapter 5, verse 29. If you can find chapter 29 in Daniel, you're doing well. Daniel 5, 29. You all know the story. Belshazzar is, is now uh, ruling in Babylon. And uh, he throws a big party in which the implements from the temple in Jerusalem are brought. And so a large hand appears and engraves in the wall of the palace there uh, the words, Mene, Mene, Tikal, Upharsin, 
which uh, Daniel interprets here. And then in verse 29, after he interprets that, I don't know after reading that interpretation or hearing that, if I were Belshazzar, I'd give this guy any reward. But anyway, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and proclaimed a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. That is that he became a triumvir. So this gold necklace as well as the purple robe, became the symbol of royal authority for Daniel as it did as given in this case to Joseph. Joseph was not given a robe of purple because the ancient Egyptians didn't normally wear purple as the symbol of their authority. But this very, very shiny white linen, bleached so, in fact, one of the Hebrew words used for linen simply means white, dazzling white. When you read in the New Testament about the angels sitting in the tomb and they were just dazzling, the, the concept there is they had linen garments so white that it almost blinded the eye. This was much more appealing to the ancient Egyptians than garments of uh, purple or royal blue. Third, uh, fourthly, <coughs> as his fourth symbol of office, Joseph was given the second chariot of the land. He was given Air Force Two, if you will, so to speak here. The second most important chariot within the royal fleet was given to Joseph to ride around in. And the passage tells us that royal attendants were to go before him and to clear the way and to cause the people to kneel in homage. Now, you have to recognize, I'm, I'm sure Joseph was a little bit disturbed by some of these things. Uh, I'm sure Joseph didn't want people bowing before him, but that was part of the program, and he had to go with the program here as Pharaoh proclaimed it. And as you think about this, to fail to kneel before the chief representative of the Pharaoh would be to dishonor Pharaoh himself. And in ancient Egypt, to dishonor the Pharaoh generally was a capital crime. Because remember, Pharaoh was not only the king, he was a god. And to fail to give homage to a god was, of course, to commit your, <laughs> sort of, to commit suicide, if you will. And so people would clear the way and bow before Joseph as he came because he was the representative Pharaoh, not because Joseph in himself wanted people bowing, but because he represented the royal authority of the land. Now, it's important for us to note that these trappings of office, the uh, fine linen, uh, the signet ring, the uh, gold necklace, and the royal chariot were not just emblems. They were not emblems of ceremony. They were emblems of, of real power. And this seems to be obvious as we read in verse 44 where Pharaoh says of jo to Joseph, without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or lift his foot in all of the land of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh is not saying there that Joseph had to go around commanding people when to lift their hand and when to lift their foot. Obviously, that's not true. But it's a statement that no one could accomplish anything on behalf of the government without Joseph's permission to do so. So what we have here is Pharaoh making this statement. I am retaining the position of king but I am giving to you the power of king. 
Those of you who have done much study of medieval history may remember something about the history of the Franks. Uh, the Franks established a major kingdom in, in the middle of Europe in, in the Middle Ages. In fact, uh, the word France comes from Frank. In fact, the people in the, over in the Eastern Mediterranean during the time of the Crusades who fought the Crusaders who came over to, to wipe out the Muslims uh, referred to all the Crusaders as Franks, even though they weren't all Franks. But uh, the, the kingdom of the Franks was ruled by a, a person who was himself king. But shortly after the kingdom was established, a secondary position was set up called that of mayor domo. And the mayor or major domo was actually similar in his power to Joseph. He was not the king. The king held the position and had the prerogatives and did all the partying that kings got to do. But the mayor domo ran the land. He was the person with the power. And so we're looking at a very parallel situation here for Joseph. From absolute powerlessness, an imprisoned slave, to the person of greatest power in the land. Literally, overnight. Only God could do such a thing. Now, can you consider the situation? Put yourself, if you will, in the sandals of those who were around Pharaoh all the time, his courtiers the princes and princesses of the land, those who served Pharaoh all the time, those who were governors and rulers over various portions of the land. Can you uh, think what they might have thought about this? Again, remembering, Joseph is young. Joseph is a person who was an imprisoned slave. Joseph was a foreigner. He was a hated Asiatic. The Egyptians had no care, no love for Asiatics, because the Asiatics were the chief threat uh, to Egyptian culture through much of ancient history. So Joseph had nothing going for him except one thing, and that, of course, is God. So what is Pharaoh going to do to make Joseph palatable to these royal officials? I mean, he could just say, I have said it, and you guys will have it, allow it to happen. Well, you know, that'll happen. But he wanted to do something in order to make it, as they say, more palatable. Not only to the royal court, but to all the nobility throughout the land. The princes of, of lower Egypt, clear down at Aswan, were not here. And probably the princes clear down at the mouth of the Mediterranean were not at Memphis either that day. And so they would only hear this as the uh, runners came and gave the message as to what was going on, and they would probably never even have seen Joseph before. So he wanted to do something to make Joseph welcome wherever he went, and even to the people. So the first thing he does is to give to Joseph an Egyptian name, Zaphonath Penea, which means world savior, or as I put on the outline, sustainer of life. Again, I think this reminds us that probably we were named whatever our given name is because somebody liked that name. And they remember somebody from their past who had that name and they liked that person so they gave you the name of, you know, of Jim or Joe or Susie or whatever it was. 
And probably that name was not given because they looked at you and said, hmm, what kind of a character is this person? And, and, and thought up a name to fit your character. But that's the way it was done in the ancient world. As you read through the names uh, of, given to the ancient Hebrews and, and to the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Mesopotamians, the names had meanings. And they were given to the person because they had a meaning. And so he is given the name which means sustainer of life because he is the one who is going to go through the land of Egypt and rescue this nation from a great calamity that is just seven years away. But beyond that, Pharaoh, what he's done now is virtually naturalize Joseph overnight as a citizen of Egypt. Secondly, what he does here is to marry Joseph to one of the most esteemed maidens of the land. One of the finest catches possible was this lady, Azanath, because she was the daughter of the high priest of Re, the sun god of lower Egypt, the most powerful priest in all the land. His daughter would be the finest catch any prince could have. And for that woman to be given to Joseph was a great honor in the eyes of the Egyptians. Azanath means she is of Neith, N-E-I-T-H. Neith was one of the major goddesses of Lower Egypt. She was one of the consorts of Re, who was a male figure, deity, and she was one of his advisors. And she was considered to be a, a kind of a mother goddess. In fact, Neith and Isis and Hathor, I've mentioned these before, they all kind of somewhat blend together. It's one of the big problems in dealing with ancient mythology. You have gods and goddesses, they all kind of get mixed up together. And, but, but Neith was considered one of the major goddesses of Lower Egypt, was considered to have a, had a role in creation that puts her in a pretty high standing place. And so he, uh, the, this, this chief of Ray, this, this chief priest of Ray, names his daughter after this principal creator goddess, Neith. She is of Neith, Azanath. <clears throat> Pharaoh's plan was to make Joseph as acceptable as possible to the royal court which stood before him and to all the princes and princesses of the land of Egypt and even to the general population for the very purpose of causing maximum cooperation with the program that Joseph was sent out to do. What I find very interesting here is that later, two of the tribal patriarchs of Israel, two men for whom tribes in Israel would be named, are born not only to an Egyptian, but to an Egyptian who was the daughter of the high priest of the sun god Re. According to Jewish tradition, Azanath forsook her pagan past and pursued the knowledge of Yahweh. I said that's Jewish tradition. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. But I can believe that from the study of the life of the character of Joseph. Joseph being a man of, of uh, single-mindedness, single purpose, pursuing the knowledge of his God and serving his God 
would have been a man, I think, who would have been a fine example to his wife and to his children. And I think she was influenced. And of course, we have to remember, God is all-powerful. And God can change the pagan mind to godly mind by his great power. And I think he probably did that for this woman. Joseph, whatever the case might be, uh, was preserved from pagan influence. She did not influence him towards paganness by marrying him. And I believe that Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons born, knew the truth about God. And although they were not perfect, none is, uh, they followed in the way of Yahweh, the way of their father. Joseph's miraculous rise to power was simply part of a greater miracle that God was accomplishing. And that was the miracle of the preservation of the nation of Israel by preserving the pagan land of Egypt. God works wondrous ways, in, in wondrous ways. He does things that uh, we wouldn't do. We'd think of what we would consider to be a more logical way to do it. God could have easily preserved uh, uh, the nation of Israel by having no famine and no drought in their area. But the scripture teaches that the famine was worldwide, meaning Eastern Mediterranean-wide as far as this passage is concerned. So Canaan was involved. You and I as Christians will not necessarily be preserved from tragedies that strike this nation that we live in today. We may suffer as others suffer. If, if the great economic collapse comes that many are predicting is, is nigh upon us, we'll all be involved in that. We will not be exempted. But God will provide a way for us. Just as he did Elijah by the brook Kareth. As the whole land was starving, birds were feeding Elijah. I don't know that God will choose to feed us with ravens if such a tragedy were to come. But somehow God will preserve. And that's where our faith has got to be focused. God is with us. God will help us. God will provide for us. Come, pardon the expression, hell or high water. And so God proves his almighty character here by putting his man in charge of a pagan land, a land that, that sit, sat in the lap of the evil one, and yet God was able to raise to the pinnacle of power in a land that Satan held tightly in his grasp, grasp a man of God's own choosing. A man of God's own choosing. Is he almighty or is he what? And we have to recognize that even in the life we live today. I'd like to go back to Genesis 41 again and read beginning verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Then Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. 
If you remember back in the 37th chapter of uh, Genesis, when Joseph was first sold off into the land of Egypt, the scripture tells us he was about 17. Here we discover that he is approximately 30. So in round figures, Joseph has passed 13 years of his life as a slave and as a prisoner in the land of Egypt. During those 13 years, he began to develop his administrative abilities. First for Potiphar, and we saw how he was raised from a, from a uh, bottom-rung slave to a person in the house of Potiphar who was second in authority only to Potiphar. And then while he was in prison, remember, he quickly rose to the place where the, the warden of the prison granted to him authority over all the other prisoners and knew that if he gave Joseph the charge of what to do, he didn't have to worry about it. It would be done right. So Joseph's abilities were being prepared under what we would consider maybe not exactly ideal conditions, being a slave and being a prisoner. Here he is with a very large task in front of him. He has a 14-year assignment in front of him at, a, at 30, approximately 30 years of age. He has to establish a nationwide food collection, storage, and distribution system. Put that in terms of our own country. Would you like to be in charge of a system <laughs> for this country? considering the bureaucracy that we understand to exist, and, and we do not have a unique bureaucracy. <laughs> Throughout history, bureaucracies have existed. In fact, the term Byzantine is often used to refer to corrupt and, and overburdening, overbearing bureaucracies because in the ancient Byzantine Empire, such a bureaucracy existed. Now, sometimes it was good. Whenever the emperor suddenly died and there was no one to take his place, the bureaucracy kept the government running. And many people have pointed to the fact, if you remember back in the days when John F. Kennedy was uh, suddenly killed, that uh, you know, it didn't cause any great uh, uh, stoppage of the government or anything else. The government just kept right on a going in the process of, of his death and Johnson being put in and, and, and the days of the illness of Dwight Eisenhower, of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. All, all of these things, our government just keeps plowing on because we've got this immense bureaucracy. It just keeps doing what it's supposed to do, and of course a lot of things it's not supposed to do, but we don't talk about those things. But this is true of all bureaucracy throughout history. And so it was true even of ancient Egypt. Trying to get this kind of a program going was not an easy thing. He did just go around, snap his finger, and it all fell into place. We've got to look at seven years of hard work getting the program established, and then seven more years of hard work making it function as it was supposed to, and Joseph had the oversight of it all. No computers. Maybe that was a blessing. No uh, pipelines to send stuff through. Um, you know, it was all pretty primitive. And yet, this was his task. Well, he was given a chariot, so we know that he had at least one means of transportation. But I think that as he went through the land to do this task, that he also used a second means of transportation, and that was a river boat. Because the whole land of Egypt is linked together 
by the Nile River. Especially was that true in those days. Even today, 95% of the population of, of Egypt lives in the Nile Valley, even today. In the ancient times, it was probably 99.9% .9 of the Egyptian population lived along that narrow ribbon of the Nile Valley. So travel up and down the Nile was, of course, the easiest means of travel. As he did this, establishing the collection and storage machinery in anticipation of the great grain glut that was about to begin, and because of, of what Joseph said in the interpretation of the dream, it began immediately. The productive years began immediately. Joseph, we believe, was at Memphis. Memphis is right where the distributaries of the Nile begin to branch out towards the Mediterranean. You've all certainly seen maps or uh, infrared photographs or whatever of the Nile Valley and of the Nile Delta. In fact, uh, because the Nile was a land very familiar to the Greeks, in fact, later on, of course, after William, not William, Alexander the Great conquered the area, it was an Egyptian kingdom for a long time. The ancient Egyptians are the ones who named that feature a delta. All river mouths, where the river spreads branches into its distributaries that go out to whatever body of water entered into, that shape feature is called a delta because that's what the ancient, Egypt, uh, ancient Greeks called it because it looked like the Greek letter delta, which is that, you know, a triangle. And uh, so they call it that. The ancient, by the way, it's kind of interesting, too, uh, those of you who have studied anything about the early history of the understanding of the Earth as a sphere will know that Eratosthenes, who was uh, ancient Greek, who lived part of his life in the land of Egypt, in Egypt, discovered the circumference of the world about 2,300 years ago. And he only missed the actual modern-day determined radius or circumference of, not radius, circumference of the Earth by about 4%. It's not a bad guess, considering the crude instruments he used. But he determined that in Egypt. Egypt was the land where he made that determination. Between a well in one place and a flagpole in another place, and the shadows cast at, at the same day of the year and, and the measure the distance in between by a geometry, he was able to calculate the circumference of the world at 24,000 miles, which the actual circumference is 24,900. Not too bad. Ancient Egypt thus became a, a land of a lot of advancement in science. And Joseph was plunged into the middle of that. But the science did not include much in the way of grain storage or transportation that was novel or unusual. So from the center at Memphis, Joseph traveled north to the mouths of the Nile on the Mediterranean Sea, a distance of about 150 miles. And then he traveled south along the Nile up to the first cataract, which is basically where the Hyaswan Dam is today, uh, a distance of about 600 miles. So he traveled up and down the river uh, as he began to establish this program. 
Now, roads paralleled the Nile River on both sides. So you had the Nile in the middle, which you could travel on riverboats, and then there were roads on both sides. Now, of course, they were basically dirt roads, but they were adequate for chariots and could be traveled uh, by Joseph and probably were. But the river would have been the safest, most comfortable, and convenient means of travel, particularly since we have to picture Joseph. I mean, we don't have Joseph out here riding along in his chariot all by himself going from city to city. He went with a royal entourage. Probably a military unit went with him wherever he went. And, and so we're talking about dozens at least of people who are traveling with him. So probably they tr did most of the bulky travel on the riverboat, running the chariot off onto the shore for local travel. Sort of like piggybacking, you know, 18-wheelers or that kind of deal uh, around the, the countryside. What's interesting is travel on the ancient Nile was facilitated by three things. From where, where the Aswan Dam is today to the mouth of the Nile, that's a distance of 750 miles, the river is largely unimpeded. You can travel up and down without dropping over any waterfalls or going through any significant rapids. And so basically the movement along that is, is, is not difficult, at least for any difficult place in the river. But then there are two other factors that are very interesting. Travel down the river was relatively simple because you went with the current. And you can do that with almost any river, right? But a third factor was unusual. And that was the prevailing wind in the Nile Valley was a northerly wind. In other words, the wind generally blew upriver. So if you wanted to go the opposite direction on the river, from the flow of the river, you just put up your sails and fought the current, of course, but the wind and, and oars were able to overcome the current so you could travel up the river and flow down the river. So yeah, travel was relatively simple on the Nile River compared to most rivers around the world. You can believe that Pharaoh's dream and the interpretation of that dream were proclaimed throughout the land of Egypt. Couriers went all over the land and proclaimed, this is what Pharaoh dreamed, this is its interpretation, prepare for what we must do, Joseph is the man in charge. And this went before Joseph, wherever he went, so that people were prepared and willing to cooperate with the grain collection program. The Egyptians were a highly superstitious people. They believed in hundreds of gods and goddesses. As I mentioned to you before, you know, there were gods of the, of the river Nile, and there were gods of this oasis over here, god of the sky, and god of the earth, and god of this, and goddess of that. And so they had this great uh, pantheon of gods and goddesses. And because the Pharaoh himself was the son of God, that is the son of Horus, the, the people respected him and they obeyed him. And so whatever Pharaoh requested, the people did, except for, of course, the few rogues around. Any society has uh, a few of those who will simply not do what they're told to do because it's their character to be roguish. Well, as predicted in the dream, Egypt experienced seven years of bumper crops. The surplus grain, as it was collected together, was put into local storehouses throughout the length and breadth of Egypt. <laughs> Not much breadth to Egypt. 
Egypt was comprised of over 40 provinces. These provinces were originally called gnomes. Uh, originally, the nation of Egypt was made up of a bunch of little city-states that were all strung out along the Nile River like beads on a string. Each one of those gnomes was independent in the beginning. Therefore, each had its own city. Each had its own capital. So as Joseph moved along the river, he established storehouses in each of those cities. So there were at least 40 storehouse centers in the land of Egypt. I checked on the map just to uh, make sure and, and noted the location of these cities. And I discovered that they were all each located, give or take a little, of course, about one day's journey apart by chariot. And so Joseph could move north and south through the land, and in about 40 days, he could actually touch on all of the major cities along the Nile itself. That's a little bit of, a, of, over, uh, of an exaggeration because the river spreads into many distributaries in the delta, and along those distributaries, whether it's the uh, Rosetta branch or whichever branch it is, there were cities too. So it would have been a little bit more complicated than that. But nevertheless, from Memphis south, it would have been a matter of just going from one city to the next down the river and establishing these centers. Now, the scripture tells us very specifically that the grain was stored in cities nearest to the fields in which the grain was produced. And I think there were three reasons for this. One is very logical to save transportation costs. Much easier to transport grain a few miles than 100 or 200 miles. Secondly, to make the grain available to the very people who produced it when the famine hit. And then thirdly, so that the farmers who turned this grain over for storage were assured of the genuineness of the plan, they saw their grain put in their storage house. That way they knew the government wasn't just putting up some kind of a ruse here, a facade for another ripoff. Oh, we, we think a famine's coming, so let's store the grain and then truck the grain off 200 miles and sell it to the Hittites or somebody. And just, in other words, up the taxes on the land. This, of course, enabled the people to be willing to cooperate. There's our grain right there. And when the famine hits, we can draw upon it. In order to carry out this program, I think Pharaoh used the signet ring very often to obtain the manpower that he needed, the resources that he needed to build storage facilities, to collect and transport the grain and to guard the storehouses. This had to be done for scores of centers, at least two score, as I said before. At least 40 centers would have to be built and maintained. It's interesting in this passage in verse 49, it's pointed out that Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. First began to measure this grain as it was being put in the storehouse, and after a while, oh, mountains of it were coming. It was taking too long to measure it out and, and to put it in storage, so they just forgot it because the cost of measuring was becoming prohibitive. Think about Joseph now. What is he acting upon? Yes, Pharaoh's authority. 
But why did Pharaoh give him that authority? Because Pharaoh believed Joseph's interpretation of the dream. So Jer Joseph is actually pushing on to accomplish this program solely on the foundation of faith in his God. That his God gave him the understanding of this dream and the program that was necessary to save the land of Egypt. Do you think Joseph ever had any doubts? Do you ever have any doubts? I think all of us at times are assaulted by doubts as to what we're about, who we are in God. Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we being the kind of people God wants us to be? We have to, I think, think of Joseph in the same terms. But he continued to press on on the basis of his faith. Our Christianity rests on the solid and only basis of faith. We believe God, and therefore we act. We believe God, therefore we live. If we don't believe God, then we either live a very hypocritical life or a very disturbed life. Our foundation has got to be in His Word. And this was where Joseph's foundation was located. I think, first of all, God began to prove to Joseph the reality of the basis he put his faith in because Egypt began to produce abundantly. Grain was growing magnificently throughout the valley and stocks were coming up with multiple heads like the Egyptians had never seen before, even in the great and fertile valley of the Nile River. Never in their experience nor in their tradition had they ever known such a surfeit of grain? I mean, it was just like mountains of grain were emerging from the earth. It was overwhelming. This, of course, confirmed to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt, to the court, to the princes around the land, that the God of Joseph was a true God. How many lives were changed? Did the Pharaoh say, forget Ray and forget Neith and forget Hathor and forget Isis and forget Horus? <laughs> Did he say that and say, I'm going to believe only in Yahweh? Scripture does not say. But certainly Pharaoh came to recognize that Yahweh of, jo of Joseph was a great and mighty God. And so the royal court was exposed too because of Joseph's faith and Joseph's obedience. Because of Joseph's verbal witness and the testimony of his life, this, this young slave who had been catapulted from prison to palace, I mean, just his life alone was a testimony to the reality of God because such a story had never been heard before in all of history. I think Joseph's witness in the land of Egypt was powerful, and I think we need to believe that that was what God was doing. Yes, God was in the process of preparing to rescue Israel and, and bring Jacob and all his family down here so that they would be saved from famine. But that wasn't all God was doing. God's plans are always redemption-oriented. Whatever God does, He does for the purpose of redeeming people, redeeming cultures, 
He is the Redeemer. And of course, he proved his great plan of redemption when he sent Christ to die and to provide redemption as we understand it. But whether pre-Christ or post-Christ, God has always been the Redeemer. And his plan and his desire was to redeem even those Egyptians that would hear and would believe. As an ath, probably, certainly, for one. How many others, we do not know. Did Joseph make an... Think about this for a minute. Did Joseph make an impact on his father-in-law? Potiphar, High priest of the sun god Ray? That would have been a difficult position to be in. And to come to believe in Yahweh and suddenly discover, whoops, <laughs> the sun god's a nobody. But I'm the high priest of this nobody. You know, uh, what, what do you do? You, you, you either have to quit, which could be very, very dangerous, because in those days, you know, it was family traditions, and, and, and uh, to quit was you know, like trying to quit the mafia. I'm not saying that being a high priest was the same as being in the mafia, but I mean the idea of quitting is as difficult. You might end up dead as much as anything else. So it was uh, a very convoluted uh, scene here. How many Egyptians came to trust in Yahweh? We cannot tell. Scripture does not say. But undoubtedly, some believed. In the book of Ecclesiastes, God says that I have set eternity in their hearts. Every man, woman, and child on this planet, whether an Eskimo in uh, you know, the Northwest Territories of Canada, or Terra del Fuegan in the southern end of South America, or a Romanian or a Russian or whatever, every person in this world has eternity set in his or her heart. Meaning the stamp of God is there. Some have described it as a God-shaped hole in the heart that only God can fill. This was true for the Egyptians, as well as for the Hebrews. And certainly there were those whose minds turned from from darkness to light, from error to truth, and came to believe in the true and the living God. I'd like to finish up today by turning to Psalm 107, reading the first nine verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the, land, from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. He let them give thanks to the Lord. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. From the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, God has redeemed men and women. And I don't believe that's only been in this age. 
I believe it has been in every age that God has worked because God is faithful. And so Joseph was God's man in Egypt, not only to redeem Jacob and his family, but to redeem such of those Egyptians as would believe and would turn from their pagan ways to believe in the true God of Israel. I think that as we extend that to our lives, we recognize that each day our life is to go out to the north, the south, the east, and the west, as it were, and, and to bear witness, as Joseph did, that God might draw in those that he has chosen to be his own. Next week, we're going to begin with verse 50. Two sons are born to Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's very interesting. Of course, it goes beyond the purview of, of, of uh, the book of Genesis to, to push this too far. But Ephraim and Manasseh become the two, along with Judah, two of the largest tribes in all of the land of Israel. And what's interesting is instead of the tribe of Joseph, you have two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Why? Does anybody know why the tribe of Joseph became two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, instead of the one tribe of Joseph? I mean, after all, Jacob had 12 sons, right? And there are 12 tribes in Israel. Levites didn't have Levites didn't have inheritance. Okay, right. Because the Levites would not have an inheritance in the land. And so to maintain 12 regional divisions, there actually were 13 tribes. But two of them, Ephraim and Manasseh, were one tribe, the tribe of Joseph. But the two names were, were given in order to keep the 12 tribes and the 12 regional divisions. And then Levi was scattered through 48 cities, north and south through all of the other tribal areas, and not given its own specific land. Very good, you get an A. What's that? You didn't have to pick Ephraim and Manasseh. God didn't have to pick, no, he didn't. <laughs> but he did. 